Keonia Gusefa kept her hands buried in the folds of her frayed coat as she moved down the busy main street of the town of Pokrovskoya, Siberia. The man she sought was in sight. He didn't notice her approach. Knowing the rumors about him, Keonia suspected that he was drunk. That's what everyone said about the man. He was always drunk. She was mere feet away. She pulled her hands from her coat, brandishing her knife. The man, Grigory Rasputin, turned at the last second. There was nothing he could do to stop Keonia from plunging the dagger deep into his belly. As Rasputin stumbled, struggling to keep his intestines from oozing out of the wound, Keonia screamed, I have killed the Antichrist. Rasputin bled out into the snow, muttering about the Catholic conspiracy to have him killed. Word of the attack spread across Russia. Everyone from the lowest peasant to the Tsar himself wondered if Rasputin would survive. But Rasputin was no stranger to miracles. And over the next seven weeks, he shocked the country by making a full recovery. His survival was a statement to the world. Grigory Rasputin was no easy man to kill. Rasputin's enemies now knew that this was not a matter to be left to a hired hand. If Rasputin was to be eliminated, they would need to see to it personally. And so they began to scheme. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Every week, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. Welcome to Assassinations. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm your host, Bill. This is our first episode on the assassination of Grigory Rasputin, the self-proclaimed holy man who rose up the ranks of Russian society until he was assassinated by Prince Felix Yusupov and his comrades in 1916. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory, and the best way to help us is by leaving a five-star review while you're there. A new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. By the end of the 19th century, the Romanov family had ruled Russia from the capital of St. Petersburg for nearly 300 years. Due to the unexpected death of Tsar Alexander III in 1894, his son, Nicholas II, found himself ruling all of Russia at age 26 and woefully unprepared for the task. This unexpected transfer of power only enhanced the turmoil that had been brewing in the country. The communist philosophy was beginning to take root among the nation's working class, and it was producing a great deal of anger toward the lavish lifestyles of the ruling elite. Among these elite, the holy man Grigory Rasputin. Rasputin initially gained favor from the Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Tsarina Alexandra after he healed their hemophiliac son, Prince Alexei, in 1906. But as the years dragged on, Rasputin came to be despised by Russia's citizens for the power he seemed to hold over the emperor's every decision. Rasputin's poor social manners rubbed Russia's high society the wrong way. His constant drunkenness and frequent orgies with his devout followers tarnished the reputation of the royal family by way of guilt by association. 
Much of Russia's population lived in poverty, and the lower classes held great contempt for Rasputin's constant, lavish display of his newfound wealth and power. By 1916, everyone from St. Petersburg to Moscow wanted Rasputin gone. But given his powerful position next to the Tsarina, no one knew who would be bold enough to commit the murder and escape the fury of the Romanovs. It was Prince Felix Yusupov who eventually took on the task. Felix was heir to the largest fortune in Russia and was personally desperate to repair his image of a series of scandals that occurred during his youth. Rumors of Felix's sexual scandals had plagued his family for years. But Felix knew that if he killed Rasputin, he would become one of the most beloved people in the country. All he had to do was plan the perfect murder and execute it. Felix Yusupov was born on March 11, 1887, in St. Petersburg, Russia, to Princess Zinaida and Count Felix Felixovich. He was the youngest of two children and grew up idolizing his older brother Nicholas. The Yusupovs were a powerful family among the wealthiest, not just in Russia, but in the entire world at this point in history. They were also popular with the commoners and were known as humble, devoutly religious, and extremely charitable people. However, from an early age, Felix proved to be a black mark on his family's reputation. Felix was raised among immense wealth. As a result, he was spoiled, unmotivated, and prone to temper tantrums throughout his childhood and into his teenage years. He loved nothing more than breaking the strict social norms of Russian high society just so that he could embarrass his parents. Felix and Nicholas had something of a bad boy reputation in their youth. They were good-looking, rich, and wild, much to the chagrin of their strict military hero father. Count Felix punished his sons whenever they behaved badly, which was often. This corporal punishment eventually led Nicholas to grow up and act in a way befitting his status as the heir to the Yusupov family. But no amount of discipline seemed to be able to curb Felix's rebellious streak. The punishment seemed to take hold for the older Prince Nicholas, who eventually went to military school and began taking on the responsibilities of being the heir to the Yusupov fortune. But for Prince Felix, there seemed to be no consequence his father could dish out that could curtail his embarrassing behavior. Felix liked to dress as a woman. He would often steal his mother's clothes and jewelry and go out on the town with a male cousin. In later years, Felix confessed that he liked cross-dressing because it felt like he was stepping into a different life, one that was free from his obligations to his title. As he grew older, Felix even started performing as a woman at the Aquarium, St. Petersburg's posh cabaret. He reveled in the attention he got, particularly from the men in the audience. There's been much speculation about Felix's sexuality. In his own writings, he alluded to romantic encounters with both male and female lovers. However, it is also possible that Felix just liked to dress and perform as a woman and generally have a good, rowdy time. Regardless of the reason, Felix's nights on stage came to an end when he was 18 and his father got wind of his nighttime antics. Until that point, 
Felix's antics had been the source of only minor gossip among the Russian aristocracy. But word of Felix's cross-dressing and the implications of his homosexuality caused a massive scandal for the Yusupovs. His father was beyond livid. Count Felix had tried and failed for years to make Felix into the model Russian aristocrat that a Yusupov was expected to be. But in the fallout of the cross-dressing scandal, the Count finally made it clear that Prince Felix was a disgrace to his family name. For the first time, young Felix felt the urge to get his act together. By 1907, the 20-year-old Felix had returned to school and was working toward rehabilitating his image. At that same time, his brother Nicholas fell madly in love with a married woman named Countess Marina de Hayden. Marina was married to a military officer, Count Monteufel. When Monteufel learned of the affair, he challenged Nicholas to a duel. Nicholas, proud as he was, accepted. During this period in history, Duels between gentlemen were meant more as displays of honor than actual combat. In a proper duel, the two fighters aim their pistols at the sky, thus proving to one another that they are honorable men. This was not the case with the duel between Nicholas and Monteufel. The two men met on July 5, 1908, just after sundown. They stood 20 paces away from each other, backs turned. At the referee's mark, The men turned and fired at each other. Nicholas held his honor, aiming his gun at the sky and firing over Monteufel's head. Monteufel, however, had aimed directly at Nicholas and only narrowly missed his chest. Both men were still standing, and Monteufel was not satisfied. Nicholas realized that Monteufel truly wanted to kill him, but his own honor stopped him from surrendering. The two men reloaded and, on the order of the referee, took several steps closer to one another. They turned. They aimed. Nicholas would not besmirch his family name. He prepared himself to once again fire his gun into the sky. He held his breath as the referee yelled for the men to fire. Monteufel didn't miss this time. Nicholas was hit in the chest and killed instantly. Felix was heartbroken at the news of his brother's death. Nicholas had been his best friend and the only person whom Felix felt understood him. With Nicholas's death, Felix became the new heir to the Yusupov family. The survival of his family's reputation, as well as its massive fortune, suddenly fell on Felix's shoulders. Felix returned home from school, ready to show his father, Russian society, and the world that he had left his rebellious days behind him. He was ready to act like the aristocrat he was expected to be, though privately, he still yearned for the freedom to act however he wanted. Around a year after Nicholas's death, Felix uncovered a letter between his brother and a well-known occultist of the time named Chinsky. In that letter... Chinsky encouraged Nicholas's pursuit of Countess Marina. The letters confirmed that Nicholas had only accepted Monteufel's challenge because Chinsky had led Nicholas to believe he would not be harmed. This revelation led Felix to hate and distrust any and all men who claimed to have otherworldly abilities. It would not be long before Felix found a man to focus that hatred on. 
one Grigory Rasputin, the self-proclaimed mystic from Siberia. We'll discuss how Prince Felix recruited people and planned the assassination in the upcoming section. But first, we're going to take a look at the life of the man that went from an impoverished peasant in Siberia to becoming the most trusted advisor to the Tsar and Tsarina in less than 10 years. That's up next. Now, back to the story. In 1905, while Prince Felix and his brother Prince Nicholas were partying among the Russian elite, Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin would step into St. Petersburg for the very first time. It's hard to find someone who was more of Felix's opposite than Rasputin. While Prince Felix had wanted for nothing growing up, Rasputin had to struggle, fight, and steal just to survive. He didn't come from a learned family, nor was he blessed with good looks, but he captivated people with his charismatic personality. When it comes to Rasputin, it's hard to separate fact from fiction. He's one of the more controversial figures in modern history, and he had many supporters and enemies telling tall tales about his origin, exploits, and abilities during his life and after his death. From here on out, we'll focus on what is generally considered fact about Rasputin based on well-known historical evidence. Rasputin was born on January 21, 1869 in Pakrovskoye, Siberia. His father was poor and worked a number of odd jobs to support his family. Rasputin was of the lowest class. He had no educational opportunities and had to work hard labor from the time he could walk. From a young age, Rasputin stole to support himself and his family. As a teenager, Rasputin gained a reputation for the bizarre powers he claimed to have. In his own words, Rasputin could heal the sick just by touching them and could even see the future. In 1889, when he was 20, Rasputin married Praskavia Dubrovina, a fellow peasant. They had three children, and Rasputin soon became a full-time thief in order to provide for his family. By 1897, he was forced to leave his family and his hometown to escape the law. He traveled far from his family and eventually found himself hiding in a monastery among Clist monks. The Clist were a Catholic sect who practiced self-flagellation and orgies in order to achieve heightened religious states. Rasputin stayed with the Clist for three years, studying under the priests and learning to read and write. Allegedly, during this time, Rasputin also further developed his supernatural abilities. Rasputin left the monastery in 1900 to travel the Russian countryside. It wasn't long before he started gaining followers who had heard legends of the man who could heal and see the future. Many of these early followers were uneducated peasants. But Rasputin's legend grew as he showed off his abilities time and time again. He soon came to the attention of Russia's high priests and the royal family. In 1904, Rasputin had a vision of the Virgin Mary. She instructed him to journey to St. Petersburg, where the Tsar and Tsarina were in need of his gifts. He arrived in St. Petersburg in 1905 and discovered that the apparition had been telling the truth. 
Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Tsarina Alexandra were in desperate straits over the health of their infant son, Alexei. Alexei was the youngest of the Tsar's five children, but as the only son, he was the heir to the Russian throne. Alexei had been born with hemophilia, a condition that prevents blood clots from forming and thus leads to constant, unstoppable bleeding. To this day, there is no cure. Nicholas and Alexandra kept Alexei's condition secret from the public, not wanting to cause a panic over the health of the only male heir to the throne. In private, they consulted trusted advisors for helping in treating Alexei's illness. In their search for a cure, they were introduced to nobles who were followers of Rasputin. A meeting was arranged between the mystical peasant and the Tsar and Tsarina. When Rasputin was allowed to see the child, he lived up to his reputation. As the story goes, Rasputin ejected all of Alexei's doctors from the room, leaving him alone with the child. He placed his hand on Alexei's head, muttered words to himself, and then proclaimed that the child had been healed. How Rasputin actually healed Alexei was, and still is, a topic of debate. But the Tsar and Tsarina believed that he had succeeded in curing their child, where all medical science had failed. Rasputin found quick favor with the Tsar and Tsarina, who wanted to keep him around in case Alexei's illness returned. They offered Rasputin riches, and more importantly, their favor. Rasputin's presence at the Russian court was unnerving to some. As a barely educated peasant, he stood out from the Russian elite. Additionally, he was, by all accounts, a proudly crass man. He drank often and didn't bathe regularly. His spiritual beliefs also unsettled religious officials. Rasputin believed that he was a Christ-like figure, and by engaging in illicit sex with his followers, drinking, and beating women, he was taking on sin to make the world more holy. Rasputin found himself with access to money, sex, and booze, all with the approval from the Tsar and Tsarina. He indulged to his heart's content. By 1908, Rasputin's gluttony and his blatant lack of decorum was drawing ire from many in Russia, including Prince Felix. By this point, Felix was still mourning his brother, Nicholas, and contending with the challenges of being the heir to his family's estate. He longed for the carefree, reckless days of his youth, and he viewed Rasputin with a mixture of disgust and jealousy. Rasputin's behavior eventually led him afoul of high-ranking Catholic priests, including hieromonk Iliador. Iliador was one of the few people in Russian high society to speak out against Rasputin in a public forum. He was also one of the last. When word of Iliador's campaign against Rasputin reached the Tsarina, she had him and any of his fellow priests who spoke out exiled from Russia. This exile only furthered hatred of Rasputin among the upper class. By 1911, even Rasputin had gotten wind of the fact that he wasn't very well liked. He chose to leave St. Petersburg for a time, to travel and hopefully wait for the hatred against him to die down. He wasn't gone for long. In 1912, while Rasputin was traveling through the Middle East, he received word from the Tsarina that Alexei needed him yet again. The royal family had traveled to Poland, and Alexei had tripped and severely injured his leg. 
The Tsarina was desperate for Rasputin to heal her son, as he had once before. But Rasputin simply responded with a message that God had told him the boy would not die. Alexei did not die from his injury, and due to Rasputin's comforting words in their most dire hour, the Tsar and Tsarina welcomed him back to St. Petersburg with open arms. Rasputin was now more beloved than ever by the royal family. He took advantage of this access and began to insert himself into every aspect of the Tsar's life, including matters of state. It wasn't long before Rasputin was actually acting as if he himself was the real Tsar of Russia. In 1914, Rasputin was nearly assassinated by Kionia Guseva. Guseva was a follower of the disgraced priest Iliador, and it was assumed that she had been acting on orders from him and other rogue Catholic priests intent on taking Rasputin out. Rasputin recovered and soon found himself with more power than anyone had ever imagined. In 1915, Tsar Nicholas departed St. Petersburg to oversee Russian forces embroiled in the First World War. Tsarina Alexandra was left in charge, but she found herself quite overwhelmed by the day-to-day -day responsibilities of running a government. It wasn't long before she had deferred nearly all of her authority to Rasputin. Rasputin, the drunk wizard monk who didn't bathe and regularly indulged in orgies for the sake of religious purity, suddenly found himself tasked with making appointments at some of the highest levels of government. By all accounts, most of his selections were disasters. To the aristocracy and other leaders within the Russian government, things had gone too far. Rasputin had been a nuisance when he was merely serving as a spiritual guide to the Tsar's family. But now he was making decisions that affected the entire country in the midst of a massive global war. Friends and family close to Tsarina Alexandra desperately tried to convince Alexandra to get rid of Rasputin for the good of the country. One of Alexandra's closest friends who attempted to intervene was Princess Zinaida, Prince Felix's mother. Zinaida had long been in good standing with the royal family, and she had hoped her reputation might help her get through to the Tsarina. Zinaida, like many in the aristocracy, were growing ever more fearful of the communist movement within Russia. The communist leaders were using Rasputin and his mishandling of state affairs as a propaganda tool to rally support. However, Zinaida was unsuccessful. Alexandra was furious at Zinaida for daring speak against Rasputin. In a fury, Alexandra told Zinaida to never speak to her again. Prince Felix did everything he could to help console his distraught mother, but nothing worked. All he could do was focus his hatred on the man responsible, Rasputin. Felix wasn't the only person whose rage was about to boil over. On November 3, 1916, a politician named Vladimir Perishkovich gave an impassioned speech to Russia's Legislative Assembly. He declared that Rasputin was the devil incarnate, and the only way to save Russia was to get rid of him. He went so far as to call for someone to murder Rasputin. Vladimir's speech gave life to the private thoughts that many in Russia had felt for a long time, including Prince Felix. 
Felix heard Vladimir's speech and realized that he was probably in the best position to kill Rasputin and save Russia. Felix realized he had an invaluable resource, his wife. As part of his ongoing mission to make up for his scandalous youth, Felix had married the popular socialite Princess Irina Alexandrovna. Irina was Tsar Nicholas's niece. His marriage put Felix in close proximity to the royal family, which meant he was in a position to get close to Rasputin. A plan began to form. Despite his efforts to rehabilitate his image, many in Russia still associated Felix with his past rebellious behavior. This could serve him well. Rasputin was always on the lookout for a new drinking buddy. Felix could get close to Rasputin, gain his trust, and put together a small cabal of men to carry out the deed. In an instant, the path forward seemed so clear. But Felix had not learned the lesson from the 1914 attempt on Rasputin's life. He still had no idea just how hard Rasputin would be to kill. Up next, we'll dive into how Prince Felix put all the pieces at his disposal into play in order to lure Rasputin into an elaborate trap. Now, back to the story. In December of 1916, Prince Felix met with Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich and politician Vladimir Perishkovich to plan when and how to kill Rasputin. Getting Rasputin to trust him would be the easy part. In fact, for reasons Felix could never quite determine, Rasputin had been eager to gain his favor since the men had first met in 1909. Felix had been blowing Rasputin off for years, but now he opened himself up to Rasputin's friendship. Beginning in late 1916, Felix would visit Rasputin in secret, pretending to be ill and in need of Rasputin's healing powers. Rasputin was all too willing to help. Recall that Felix was heir to the biggest fortune in Russia, and Rasputin was all too eager to get close to him. Over time, Felix's frequent visits led to a budding friendship between the two men. Felix had become aware that Rasputin lusted after Princess Irina. Felix was not above dangling his own wife in front of Rasputin as a lure. Felix knew if he hinted that Irina might be available to Rasputin, he could get Rasputin to go anywhere. The plan was straightforward. Felix would invite Rasputin to his private home, Moika Palace, with a veiled promise that Irina would be there and would be available to Rasputin. Felix would pick up Rasputin and transport him to Moika Palace. There, Felix would keep Rasputin in the basement and tell Rasputin that Irina was hosting a party in the main house and that he had to wait for her to be done. Felix would then present Rasputin with cakes laced with cyanide provided by Dr. Stanislaus Lazovert, a new member of the plot. Once Rasputin was dead, they'd hide the body to make it appear as if Rasputin simply left town, never to return. The plan was set. The men were prepared. On Friday, December 29, 1916, they moved to save Russia and assassinate Rasputin. Felix arrived at Rasputin's flat in St. Petersburg at around 11 p.m. He entered Rasputin's home through the secret entrance that Rasputin used to keep prominent guests who didn't want to be seen. As he waited for Rasputin to get ready, 
Felix found himself dreading what came next. What if the stories about Rasputin were true and he could see the future? Would he know what Felix was planning? Rasputin presented himself, ready to leave. Felix buried his fears and the two left for Moika Palace. It was close to midnight when they reached the house. Felix led Rasputin to the basement. Above them, Dmitri, Vladimir, and Dr. Lazovert, the man responsible for administering the poison, played records and spoke loudly, creating the impression that a lively party was going on. Rasputin quickly began to grow impatient, but Prince Felix assured him that once the guests left, his wife would come down to visit with them. It was the moment of truth. Felix produced a plate of poison cakes and offered one to Rasputin. Rasputin declined. He didn't care for sweets. This was always a possibility. Felix had a backup. He offered Rasputin a glass of poisoned wine. Again, Rasputin refused. The atmosphere grew tense. If Felix couldn't get Rasputin to eat anything, he'd have to find another way to kill him. But then... Time passed. Rasputin grew hungry. He had some cake and he drank some wine as Felix watched on, relieved. Lazavert had put enough cyanide in the cake and the wine to kill any man almost instantly. And yet, as Rasputin ate and drank, nothing happened. Felix watched in shock and awe as the poison seemed to have no effect on him. Panicked, Felix offered more wine. Rasputin accepted, yet still he didn't die. The wine did little to put Rasputin in a good mood. It was after midnight and he was tired of waiting. Rasputin and Felix locked eyes. Felix felt his blood rush. He wondered if the look Rasputin gazed at him with his hypnotic eyes meant that he knew that he was there to be killed. Prince Felix's chest tightened with anxiety as he tried not to telegraph through body language his true intentions for Rasputin. Prince Felix must have succeeded in reassuring Rasputin with just a look that he was only there for friendship. Because as soon as Rasputin broke away his stare, he asked Felix to play him a song on the guitar. Felix's skill on the instrument was enough to set Rasputin at ease. After the first song, Rasputin asked for another. The relaxing setting, orchestrated by Felix's improvised songs, abruptly turned chaotic when there was a sudden racket from upstairs. Alarmed, Rasputin complained again about the time. Prince Felix had no other option but to agree. They'd been waiting for hours. Felix assured Rasputin that he would go upstairs and find out when the party was set to end. Once upstairs, he huddled with Dmitri, Lazavert, and Vladimir. They asked what was taking so long. Surely Rasputin was dead by now. Felix had no good answer for why the poison wasn't working. But he knew their time was almost up. He took Dmitri's pistol and headed for the stairs to the basement. He moved down the stairs, checking the gun to make sure it was cocked and loaded. When he reached the basement, he was almost relieved to see Rasputin slumped over in his chair. The poison had finally worked. But then... 
he wasn't dead yet, and Felix could no longer wait for the poison to do its job. He aimed the pistol at Rasputin and fired point blank. After the body hit the floor, the rest of the conspirators came down to the basement. They moved fast, grabbing Rasputin's coat and other clothes. Their plan was to dress one of them up as Rasputin and go back to his flat. There, they would pack up Rasputin's clothes and make it seem like he had left St. Petersburg. But then... Rasputin let out a guttural moan. The men watched in shock as Rasputin, somehow still alive, rose suddenly and attacked Felix. Felix managed to get free of Rasputin's grasp. Rasputin turned and ran for the stairs. The men gave chase, following Rasputin out into the courtyard. Felix still had the gun. He opened fire. Rasputin collapsed as he was struck with more bullets. When the men gathered around their fallen target, they shot him several more times, just to be sure. At this point, Felix wasn't even sure Rasputin could be killed. He grabbed a baton from Dmitri and beat on Rasputin's unmoving corpse. Exhausted, with his hands shaking, Prince Felix collapsed next to Rasputin's lifeless body as he struggled to catch his breath. As the hard Russian winter snow began to pelt Felix's soft-skinned face, he gazed into Rasputin's cold, dead eyes and began to feel a bit of relief as the weight of his actions began to set in on him. Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin, the mad monk, puppet master of the Tsar and Tsarina, antichrist, healer, prophet, and Russia's villain, was finally dead. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We hope you enjoyed part one of our two-part series on the assassination of Rasputin. If you're looking for more episodes or other stories of murder and crime, you can find us, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. Next week, we'll cover how a frantic Prince Felix and company improvised a plan to dispose of Rasputin's body and evade the fury of the Tsar and Tsarina. We'll also theorize what could have happened if Rasputin had survived the attack and how the fate of the world may have been completely different if Prince Felix had failed. See you next Monday. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Sammy Sarzoza and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 